Cheerio! As human beings, don't we enjoy enjoyment? This is Five Golden Things, The Liberty Lists, a podcast of whimsy from Liberty Church Collingswood and libertycollingswood.org. We'll hear from friends as we explore everything from potent potables to morsel delectables, awkward laughables to moment teachables. You'll get lots of different categories, but remember that for each one, there can be only five. Plus a mulligan or two. Five, four, three, two, one. Lift off, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Five Golden Things. Encore, or as they say in Italian, when a singer is so, so loved, they'll say bis. Again, twice. Oh. Tony Belushi, everybody. I didn't know that. Okay. Hi, everybody. Um, (laughs) And we listened back, and Jim is starting. That's right. This round. Yes. I may have forgotten what my three were at this point because <laughs> it's been, I feel like, I, I was thinking about this today. Yeah. I think I was in short sleeves the last time I came here. It, w- it was mid-September, and when I went back and listened to our episode, the AC wall unit was cranking. So yeah. if, if people listen to the first, I think I think the, uh, did did you notice the title that, that I put on it? Uh, well... I felt like you looked in my bag, actually. Uh, well, maybe. So the, Dosto, uh, you know he didn't? Dosto, he didn't. He didn't, right. Right. So, wait, 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 no, I think the pronunciation would be Dosto, he did it. Yeah. <laughs> so, something to that effect. I felt so, like you looked, yeah. well, I'm, there's a little... Uh, foresha- Don't keep your hand. Foreshadowing. Okay, I like that. Literary reference. And so, Turtle Loves, if you haven't guessed, this is part two of the podcast that Tony and I did back in September... Top five big books. And Tony, by big books, we mean according to quality and impact, right? Yeah. I initially thought it was supposed to be like size of book. Yeah. And then I very quickly ran out of those books. I think I just read very slowly is the problem. But also, I think there are books. This is me just explaining what I will say a little bit later. Some of these books... They take a long time because they're hard, but also they should take a long time because they're dealing with big topics yeah. and they're supposed to change you. Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah. I, th- I think actually uh, uh, Maya told me that. So okay. she said, is that what you mean by that? I said, I think you're right. I think that's what I mean by that. So, you know. You know some, sometimes when I preach sermons and I'll get feedback, Jim, what I thought you were saying there was blah, 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 and I thought that was a really good point. Is that what you were saying? And I'm like, yes. Yes. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. That's right. So my my one thought from last time, then we'll jump straight in. So I have three more books to talk about. Tony has two. We cut it halfway. Yeah. The part of the beauty of big books is that they're not just about one thing. Yeah. And it's hard to summarize. It, it's easier to summarize a small book or a little book because they're focused, they're targeted. But but the, the romance of the big book mm is that it's sort of about everything. Maybe, okay. So that's actually a good insight. Maybe, so I feel like I have a pretty good attention span because mm-hmm. I can read big books, but it yeah. might be. Cause so, so when oh, I'm not, I see where you're going here. Yeah, when I'm, <laughs> when I'm not reading big books, like most of the time I'm not doing that, I'm reading five things. Yeah, yeah. But when I do the big book, like I can read it just that thing, probably because it's jumping around all over the place. Hmm. So it really... Maybe I'm arguing, like, for the modern person in the modern condition, like, uh-huh. actually, these huge books are essential. Right. This is what it is, actually. You know, the one that I have for my final. Yeah. Is the ultimate modern big book. 
You know what it is. Well, I have no idea. Okay. But but yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's kind of funny. So if we're saying this is kind of like the, uh, hey, the the miracle diet to lose a ton of weight is just to eat a ton of bologna and ice cream. So what, what, what we're kind of saying is, do you have ADHD? What you need to start doing that will really satisfy you is, is like a 3,000-page tome. Yeah, yeah, that'll work. Okay. That'll conquer it. Well, without further ado, and I have uh, – I can talk about the book, but, and I have two ancillary stories. And we're we're going to try, try to keep this podcast tight, but then I have two stories connected with yeah. my first book. So – Two it people is a who book talk for a living. With the title that is a number, 2666. Oh, you read this. Roberto Bolaño. Okay. You read this. I, I, I did. I, I mean, it would be deceptive of me if I, if I haven't read I, this. Well, books. no, I say because I bought yeah. it. I oh, bought it okay. because, I, I mean, I think I read about it in the, probably the New Yorker or someplace. Sure. Yeah. And they said, like, this is going to be the one. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the kind of early 20, 21st century book. Yes. Said, okay, because he was he had died? Right. Okay, go. Yep. So, Roberto Bolaño. Oh, man, I, for, I forget where he's – is he a Venezuelan author? Uh, um, oh, man, I, I'm blanking out. You keep going. I'll so, shout it out. So, the, the title is 2666, mm-hmm. and there is a specific reason that that title – has the, is that title that's in the book that, that that I won't spoil? So it was published posthumously. I think Bologna died in something like his fifties. So he had written a few books before. Most famously, relatively speaking, the Savage Detectives was by him. That was made into a movie, and Chile, Chile. Yeah. Uh, and and so this book is set, I believe, in a fictional Mexican town. And if I could grab it back, yeah, the. Uh, I'll, I'll just read you the back cover. <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why we're here. I got not the, much further than that. But yeah. <laughs> uh, three academics on the trail of a reclusive German author, semicolon. Uh, a New York reporter on his first Mexican assignment, semicolon. A widowed philosopher, semicolon. A police detective in love with an elusive older woman. These are among the searchers drawn to the border city of Santa Teresa, where over the course of a decade, hundreds of women have disappeared. With with a big book, you had me at semicolon. There we go. Like, <laughs> right. all, all once, and this is, what do we have here? This is 898. Yeah, it's uh, a big book. And it's all one sentence. The, that, that, that's actually not true. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but, it, but it's a novel divided into parts, all centering around this yeah. dusty town that's economically depressed in Mexico. And it's a book that plays in multiple registers and does all of them well. So there is this search for a German architect and you have a lot of prose writing about architecture and going back into the past. But then all of these women are constantly disappearing. So it's a police procedural. And then the journalist that goes into Mexico is Mm. a struggling sports writer. And so you have all of these different things that get at, Mm. in some ways, the protagonist of the book is the town yeah and all of these different things are going on in the town and for the most part the different characters from the different sections they don't connect with one another except that they're walking the same blocks Mm. breathing the same dusty air getting pounded by the same sun and then thinking of the wire or something like that yeah, Yeah, yeah right like every season is a different but it's the same facet of baltimore right yeah yeah and then the structurally all of these women are constantly disappearing by way of crime 
those that is not a dedicated section for the most part, but they're journalistically written disappearance stories interspersed throughout the novel with no other explanation, hmm. really, and and the crimes are never solved, which is not really a major spoiler of the book. Yeah. Okay. So so you have so it's not quite a mystery novel in the sense you're not it's no. not a whodunit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So it's it's a very big novel and it has has aspects of Latin American magical realism. So kind of the Borges, mm. Garcia Marquez mm. sort of, uh, again, same register, something very mundane happens. But then I'm recording a podcast with Tony. He adjusted the microphone and then flew away on his wings. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> w- yep. Without a, yeah. W- with no explanation of, you know, how these things can, can occur in the same yeah. sentence, let, let alone the, the, the same reality. And yeah. So it, it's a novel that leaves you parched and quizzical by the end where you don't know exactly what you read. And I couldn't even tell you what, what the point or the main theme of the novel is. But every section has its own set of mysteries, intrigue, and romance. Not necessarily relational romance, mm. but, but you're drawn in at these various points. And it, it it's almost like it's the equivalent of the bible in the sense that what you sense that Bologna is trying to tell the story of everything and I think I said this last time where part of the beauty of the big book that I like Mm -hmm. is some crazy person who's just gonna they and it's almost like they don't quite know where they're going with it but there's this seed of an idea that just keeps producing Um, I have this kind of working theory of beauty that something beautiful is something that inspires creation yeah. uh, and something that is ugly or evil is something that restricts creation it doesn't uh, want to do it it, is, it doesn't want right. to go anymore yeah. it's, you know um, kind of curls in on itself and so it, yeah I don't know I don't know where I'm going with that it just it just seems that maybe that's what's going on there yeah is the I don't even know if I'm using I forget if I'm using this word correctly a talk Whoa. Um, self-generating. Oh. And so, so, so generated with resources from within itself. I could be totally getting that, that, that word wrong. But if, but if uh, I'm hearing right what you're saying the about the, the, the big book, the, there's a self-generating quality to it yeah. where, where it flowers from within itself. And, and I would bet I've, I've never read any interviews of authors of – well, I guess I have read interviews of authors of big, big books, but – Nothing specific comes to my mind, and yet I'll say, I bet these authors, by and large, would say that these books kind of wrote themselves. Yeah. And and, and the writer's along for the ride. I mean, one uh, American big book, The Graves of Wrath, I just finished teaching that. Oh, nice. And Steinbeck wrote it, I think, in th- like three weeks or something. Wow. Yeah. And, I mean, and it's not, I think, on the level of, of a 26, 66, I don't know, I guess that's how you would say mm-hmm. it, um, in terms of just the intricacy of the language and right. all of that. Yeah. Um, or some other authors I can think of where the language is incredibly intricate, but there is sort of like a fever dream way that a lot of these books seem to come together, even if they take years to do. Yeah. Because the author has to get lost in them. Right. As opposed to, and I can think of a, a writer who really is able to produce a book a year, like, a, like an Ian McEwan, yep. is able to produce about 250 pages a year. Right. He's and they're always great. They yep. just work. Yeah. They're good. But that's, you know, it's a different animal and I can't convince people that I kind of read books with to read these other books they want to yeah. read the those other books that are kind of bite-sized and all of that right 
Yeah. But. Yeah, very true. So the two stories, and yeah. uh, just to reassure the turtle doves, I don't think I have any other stories connected to any of my okay. other books. So, so yeah. it's not going to go this long. The a few maybe three or four years ago, my brother Mark, who lives in D.C., very specific set of circumstances where there was money available for us that we could only use for a night out on the town, <laughs> which is the only time that happened in, wow. <laughs> in, in my life. So, so, so we had a budget of between maybe uh, 500 bucks and upward wow, that's a pretty good to, night. to just do a nice night. Yeah. And, and just, just so it doesn't sound like I'm this horrible, right. <laughs> like... The imagination, imagination reels now. Yeah, so, so the... It, it was a very specific set of circumstances. That's that's okay. the that's the main thing. So, Mark and and I was going to spend the night at his house in the D.C. area. So mm-hmm. the 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 plan was to go cocktail bar, steakhouse, and then after dinner drinks. So, sure. cocktail bar. My brother found this place in D.C. that was a cocktail lounge at a swanky hotel in D.C. That. Um, it was called something like the library, and the conceit of the cocktail bar was that the signature cocktails they had on the menu were all titles of novels. Uh, and I go there. when you go there and you order the book-titled cocktails, the servers and the mixologists are trained to converse with you about the book if you've read <laughs> this it. This is actually my favorite place I've ever been to. Yeah. So, so, so Mark and I thought, like, are, are we being punks? Like, yeah, are, are, are right. we going to show up at this place and then it's like, hello, nerd, you've been punks. Right, yeah, but, right. So, so we said, this is awesome. And I was already reading 2666, but it was one of the cocktails no on the menu, kind of like a mezcal-based yeah, that works. thing. Yeah. And, and Mark ended up reading... Kokoro, a Japanese novel by Natsumi Soseki from the twentieth century, because that was also one of the ones on there. And wow. you know, we had five hundred to spend, but we were feeling like a million bucks. So so we yeah. got to the hotel, walked in, it was a really big I forget what a hotel it was, really, really big lobby. And we weren't scared, we weren't freaking out, but we walked in and realized there were like a hundred or two hundred people milling around the lobby that we were very, very different from. And we were just wondering what was going on. And, uh-huh. you know, we're, we're two white guys, so it's good for us to sure. feel like, hey, we're not the majority yeah. in, in, in the room, but, but still puzzled. And so we yeah. took a few steps in, and there was a sign, a little internal hotel placard that said, Welcome, Black Transgender Identification Conference. Wow. And then... The most specific conference. <laughs> well, yeah. sure. Yeah. And, and so... You know, Mark and I, at, at least when you would look at right. me, we don't necessarily <laughs> fit that paradigm. And so, but we didn't know where the cocktail lounge was. So we just started walking and a person after person came up to us and said, thank you for your solidarity. Thank you for standing with us. Are you here for the conference? <laughs> and a couple times, the first couple of times we're like, hey, love you all. Yeah, right. We're here for this nudie cocktail bar. Right. Where the, um, where are the drinks? Yeah, yeah. Where, where the novels or cocktails are named after. And, and so this kept happening. It wow. was such a sea of people. I, I eventually looked at Mark and said, Mark, we've got to get out of here. Right. Wow. <laughs> the, and so we finally found the, uh, found, found the cocktail bar. In the very, very back of of the hotel, but just a funny experience. What a, where, wow! Yeah, and so Had, that, did you know that these drinks were on the menu yet? Yeah, so we did like heavy oh, internet research okay. beforehand. So I was already I, I, two sixty six was already reading, finished it 
on purpose in time for the cocktail it's bar. Strong motivation. And and to then work Mark saw the yeah, and, then, <laughs> and then Mark saw the menu cocktail menu and said, I need to read Kokoro to be able to uh, be at the cocktail yeah, it's bar. A, it's an honorable man. Very yeah. very nice steak dinner. Then went to a bourbon bar after dinner before going back to his house, and we took an Uber everywhere. And I I had come in with like an overnight bag, so when we got out of the Uber, went into the the bourbon place mm. we set our bags down uh like with the maitre d hey i'm yeah here from out of town is our place where i can put my bags while we go back and and have a drink so had a nice time there and then came back to the front i grabbed my bag and then mark grabbed also a bag and i said oh. mark that's not wh- where's that bag from oh, oh no and uh he's <laughs> like this was one of your bags i got it from the trunk of the uber and i said no i just had the one bag and oh no so Mark grabbed from the back of this random Uber car some kind of duffel bag that was not mine, right. nor was it Mark's. And it just felt like the beginning of a short story. I was going to say, like, then you find yourself into the plot of the book, 2666. Right. Yeah. You know I mean? it, it was ticking. <laughs> and, oh, no. and, uh, <laughs> so so we, we were kind of tired by the end of the night that yeah. we said, like, We've got to find the Uber driver, and so how do you find how do you find an Uber driver that dropped you off like an hour and a half earlier? Oh my gosh! Yeah, and it, get names, it, yeah. it was its own adventure. It turned out to be a gym bag with like basketball shoes and stuff of the Uber driver. Okay, it, it wasn't full of money. Wasn't full uh, of money. Right. Wasn't it, it? It wasn't a uh, ice chest that seemed like it had an organ. Oh no! Yeah, in right. Or something. Wow. But but it was a perfect end to to a strange night where we were running around D.C. with the duffel bag that was not ours. And it did feel very 2666, yeah. where, where it was the beginning of a great that's adventure. A ma- that's a magically real story. Yes. If I've heard one. Yes. It was all true. Okay, 2666. Wow. Tony, what you got? Dostoevsky, actually. Dosto, he did it. Yeah, it, I did. Wow. Yeah, it is. Uh, I don't, it's not that long. I mean, it's 564. Okay. But like Little Print, yeah, I guess no, you could say. Dostoevsky's a name. It's a big book. It's a name. You hear the name and you think, right. I can't read this. Okay, this is too much for me. Right. This is this is um one of those books like it it took a bit to read. Um, it really does fly for anybody who's ever thinking about crime and punishment. It's a book that you hear about. I've never read it. Oh, it's incredible. Okay. Um, Raskolnikov. Is the, the great Ruskolnikov. main count? Yeah, main character who, and I'm not giving anything away. He uh, decides. So basically, he's reading. I, I can't tell if Dostoevsky and uh, Friedrich Nietzsche are are like if if Dostoevsky's reading Nietzsche at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is in the 19th century, right. or just the ideas were sort of in the air, and yeah. Nietzsche captures them and, and puts them down into these pamphlets and the books and all yeah. that. It's hard yeah. to really tell. I've done a little bit of research on it. Mm-hmm. But essentially, Raskolnikov, the main character, is a sort of Nietzsche-like figure. Real piece of work. Yeah, like he's espousing some of these ideas, but he sort of takes it beyond. So he says, like, if you want to become the Superman, mm-hmm. you have to go beyond what most people do, and we're held right. back by these societal strictures, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And so to stop, I guess, the abuses to the people that are going on, the abuses to himself that are mm-hmm. going on, he decides yeah. that his landlady uh, needs to be murdered. Right. And so he plots to murder her and then release all of her money. Yeah. To himself and to everybody else, but mostly to himself. 
Uh, and then, when, so when he does this, he kills her. And then another lady walks in who's just a nice lady. Right. Um, and kills her, too. And the re- and this is just right in the first part of the book. Yep. I'm not giving anything away, yep. really. Um, the rest of the book is, is essentially him falling apart. Right. Um, and as are many of these kinds of books from the 19th century, just a lot of laying around having a fever. But... <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Which is like I read more books uh, than I can really count that have that as like a subplot. Right. Yeah. But really, it's it's, it's him. Yeah, it, it's him going through this thing. Like, what if I did like the Faustian bargain? What if mm-hmm. I just did the thing that I want to do all in? Yeah. Now I read this before I had kind of come back to any sort of spiritual life as an adult. Right. And I I think I would credit this maybe a couple other things that were going on in life, but credit this as a real driver to get me back into spiritual thought. Interesting. Because I said, okay, well, what if you made everything up? Like, yeah. what what yep. if you just made your own way entirely? Mm-hmm. You didn't pull on any tradition right. from any culture. It's just you, which is essentially what, what Raskolnikov is doing. Um, I know, I don't think I was at risk of murdering people and things like that, yeah. but taken to its extreme, uh, there is a... I guess an imprecision of thought that starts to present itself to him mm-hmm. as the novel goes on, and then he really starts to feel guilty. Right. He really starts to feel bad about what he was willing to do to people and all that. Yeah. And even though he's probably not going to get caught as the book goes on. Yeah. The, the guy who's interviewing him and interrogating him mm-hmm. seems to be almost willing to let him ruin himself. Right. Um, there's no getting away with it. Yeah, you you can't get away with it in life. Right, like you, you, even if you get away with it, you're still with yourself. You still yeah. got to deal with your soul. Right. And after I finished that book, I said, "Oh man, I got to deal with this." Yeah. So, so in that sense, and that's why when I was you know talking uh, to other people before the first episode, it was like there's big books and there's big books, and it, that yeah. was one of those books. Had I not read it, I don't know if I'd be sitting across from you right now. It's that big. Wow. Of a, of a book. Boom. And I recommend it to a lot of people. Um. But because it, it re it reads even if you don't have a big change in life, it's so, it reads so well in this particular yeah. translation. I think it's uh, Pivar and the P and V. The P and V. The yeah, they they Pivar do. And yeah, they do a lot of the. Um, the Tolstoy. When he did War and Peace, or most of it. Yeah. Uh, it was the B and V version. Yeah. yeah. And, and I like. I don't know if it's totally accurate to everything else, but it just reads. They're in well a very modern way. As translators. Yeah. So, it, it reads yeah. in a really modern way, and I tried to read other uh, Russian translators, and they didn't quite ring out like these folks. So they, yeah. they, they seem to be like the the main game in town right now. And then you know to follow up, like a little side note, I read The Idiot after this, ah. which is almost the opposite book. Right. Where The Idiot is the most. Just he's just the nicest guy. Mm-hmm. He he just is totally innocent, almost like a child. Yeah. Um. He's not quite like a Christ figure, but something like it. Like he's right. very innocent and just uh, uh, approaches people exactly how they are, which freaks people out. Yeah. They don't know what to do with it. Yeah. Um. And so I would recommend if you read uh, Crime and Punishment, maybe follow it up with The Idiot. The Idiot's probably not as good of a book. But they, they do they, right. They they go right uh, with each other and all that. If you like Dexter, the show oh, yes. Dexter, it's right. kind of like Dexter. But what if there was no justification for doing any of the things uh-huh. uh, that you would come up with? It's right. kind of how it reads to me. Yeah, so, yeah, that's my book. Crime and Punishment. My son Micah, who's in eleventh grade, bought this for himself for Christmas. Wow. And he's uh, since since we last talked, Tony, Micah. 
told me I want to be somebody that reads big books, and wow. he, he he did not listen to the episode oh. of Five Goals. Five Goals, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but you know, like father, like son, I guess. I, I and, was so happy and so disappointed in one actual <laughs> breath, one breath. Oh, listeners, if right. if, you, if you could have seen Tony <laughs> swell up with pride and then just deflate that's, like an that's empty That's the balloon. teacher's life. It's okay. The, yeah. uh, here, I'll I'll ask it as a question. He he read a big book this fall that is considered sort of a gateway drug to Ooh. a big book, or, or it is really long. Okay. It's not, 20th century, not super well respected in the academy at this point. Oh, geez. But, so it has, has more detractors and supporters. Yeah. Hope it's not the, my final book. <laughs> that would be hilarious. <laughs> but, but actually, I'll, I'll just say that it was. Just, just yeah, 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 right, right. It is. <laughs> um, but, uh, or, or it's been lumped in the neo neoconservative as like a neo, like a neocon. I'm so excited. Uh, book and the supporters would say that it's unfairly pitched. Atlas shrugged. Uh, Fountainhead. Fountain. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Ayn Rand. Yep. Exactly. So. Um, yeah. Like, but I read Fountainhead in high school with appreciation. So, yeah. So, and and I was and I was happy for him to and I haven't actually tuned into the discourse about. Rand and Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged and all this. I don't know. But, I have uh, students. That's where they go. I yeah. mean, and then they end up in other stuff. And I guess I'm more like a librarian about this. Yeah. Or like, I just don't care. Like, right. read whatever. Yeah. So I, I was happy that he was reading it. But Crime and Punishment, uh, he's he's reading two books now. Crime and Punishment is one. 1Q84 by oh, Haruki yeah. Murakami was, was the other one. But, uh, and I've talked with him a little bit about it. Granted, I haven't read it. But one of the things that still has crime and punishment on my list is that it's a book about big ideas that also gets the details right. And yeah. one of the things that I've said to switch genres about Bruce Springsteen's music is mm. that the best of Bruce is big ideas, big themes, lots of humanity with hyper-realistic writerly details that ground everything. Yeah. And some of the... Later Bruce songs are less less good because earlier when he would be writing songs about hope or struggle or yeah. faith or loss or grief, the story songs, now he's using the words hope and loss and grief. As a substitute for right, all the, for, yeah, uh, yeah, but the slamming of a screen door. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know. Yeah, so right. evocative. And Crime, Crime and Punishment, I mean, Dostoevsky does not need me to say, hey, this guy might might be a good writer. Yeah, but but it sounds like crime, crime and punishment balances the a very specific person, Raskolnikov, with a very specific set of circumstances, yeah. but is a access point to sin, grace, redemption, life, death. You, you feel like you're stuff. in a bigger conversation than yeah. even what the plot is quite doing, mm-hmm. and and it's so and, and he doesn't hit you over the head with it. It's right. just you can't help but think about yeah sin, like what and and examine what that is. In yourself and in yeah. the world, and what are you kind of pushing to the side? What are you allowing? Mm-hmm. What obsessions or whatever it is that you're doing? Because really, the book is about obsession. It's almost yeah. about addiction, something like that. So, like, sure. what, what are you allowing in that, yeah. that you need to keep an eye on, kind of thing? Anyway, mm. yeah, very good. Crime punishment. Shall we do? Shall I keep going here, Tony? Mm-hmm. Do you want to hear mine? I guess this would be my number two. Nonfiction. And one that I read pretty recently, but here we go. Oh. It is The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War by 
a current Harvard professor, Louis Menon. And I think I, he's, a, he's a New Yorker guy, too, I feel. I think he pops up there a lot. I yeah. know the name. I know the name. Yeah. 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 So it's a cross-disciplinary history of uh, art and thought and culture, politics, kind of like post-World War II into the, the mid-1970s. Oh. And what I really enjoyed about that book, and I don't, I, that's the first thing that I've read by, by Manon. I, I, I really enjoy cultural histories overall. But in addition, this is a cult history, cultural history that's deeply cross-disciplinary. So yeah. it's not just about writers. It's not just about politics. It's not just about the civil rights movement, historically speaking. It, it's not just about... Uh, there's a chapter on uh, the changing economy. So how, how does consumerism influence culture and art and, mm. and vice versa? Uh, and so, the, but, but then there's a lot of like stuff about music and, you know, the consumerism chapter interfaces with Elvis. So with a lot of the rock and roll music, or one way to look at the birth of rock and roll through Elvis and all the others in the 1950s is through the lens of like economics and consumerism where until after World oh, War II, there is no such thing as teens having agency and like economic agency. But all of a sudden, people marketed stuff towards people under twenty years old, which was mm. which had had never happened before. Yeah. But if if that shift in marketing hadn't happened, would rock and roll have happened in the same way? So so mm. drawing all of these connections, it it's a little bit like if you're a murderer. Yes. Okay. I, yeah. I was waiting to see how you respond interest. to that. The, or the, the, the classic murderer in his or her own, her own basement with like the, the huge bulletin yeah. board uh, with the article over here, the grainy photo over here, the pins and the threads between everything. Yeah. And that free world book is a little bit of a beautiful mind situation where he's drawing all of these interstitial connections between cultural forces that some cases more than others, but at least I knew some things about. But part of his point is all of these people in all of these different fields, many of them were friends with one another. And so, uh. so, so for example, there's, there's a lot of talk about New York in the 1950s and 60s, not a super original yeah. thing in itself, but it had the Caselli Gallery. There was one specific art gallery where you had the artist, Jasper Johns and uh, Russian Bush uh, and uh, Pollock, but then also you had the uh, 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 Ginsburg and like the 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 beat writer all like around each other, right? And and then John Cage and Philip uh, Philip Glass, like composers and I, stuff. Yeah, but you can see it if you know these people. Yeah, yeah. You can see how that is happening. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And and so Menand is specializing not in drilling deep down into any of these spe specific directions, but telling a story. Sort of the main upshot of which is if you don't see all of these connections, you're impoverishing anyone telling of any one of these threads. Mm. And does he, in each chapter, is he writing just about, like almost like a little historical case study, here's some things that happened in this space? Or is it still arguing, here's how this fits into the Cold War? Or is he just kind of leave you at the end, like, I'm yeah. telling you all these stories? Right. Here they are. Deal with it. Uh, so, so number one, it's less specifically about the Cold War, even though that's in the subtitle. But the okay. first couple of chapters talks about how the political milieu of yes. 
Thank of, you for doing that. Of Cold War politics, I always say that is is an under has an underappreciated effect on artistic expression mm-hmm. of uh, of of the time, and also like economic um, the the uh, the birth of the suburb has something to do with the Cold War. Yeah, uh, like psycho, in terms of like psychology, and there's lots of other contributing factors too. So it it's loosely chronological, but then also each chapter sort of take takes a different discipline and yeah so in in some ways there's no larger thesis beyond that but 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 just to tell the story from a series of perspectives that interlock in ways that i haven't seen seen the story told before um Uh, seems like a better book i I like the book there's a book by ross douthat called the decadent society which is probably a riff on the affluent society that came out sometime before right um and he was kind of doing this but this seems like the even more, I mean, he's a Harvard professor, so, and, and doubt that it's a New York Times columnist. So, I mean, like, they have different different time. Both slouches, obviously. You're right, yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, doubt that essentially makes the case from the 50s to the 2000s about essentially something like this, like the influence of one to the next to the next to the next to the next. But he can yeah. only really talk about film and a couple right. of other things. Yeah, so, I, I do like Interesting. Doubt I do too. I do too, yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's, I'd recommend that book. It's, okay. not, it's not a very big book, though. Gotcha. Yeah, just a book. <laughs> yeah. So, Tony, so. we'll do another podcast. Best small books. That, right, that, small that, books. Right. That would, that would also be an, be an yeah. interesting subject. Last thing I'll say about this book. Yeah. The one major area that I didn't understand, and this is one of the semi theses of the book, is that specifically the New York graphic art scene in the fifties and sixties yeah, yeah. has a much larger influence on a lot of other things that went on politically, socially. Um, than uh, than one one might realize. So so kind of the, the the Bohemian art scene comes into focus in a lot of cultural tellings in like Los Angeles and San Francisco in the six, like sixties, mm-hmm. so like the Haight Ashbury scene. Mm-hmm. But the same sort of culture forming, culture making gumbo pot yeah. was, was operative before that in the fifties, and it stayed there with like Warhol and uh, that's what and, I was thinking York of. And the, yeah. and the, in the '60s as well, but uh, if um, if art takes a backseat in a lot of cases to like music, like uh, other forms of pop culture, uh, film, music, yeah. etc., Menand is saying that back then it was the graphic artists that that were driving a lot of these conversations. Yeah, I think it's still happening now. But yeah, people, yeah, they want to think they, you know, people want to think that they're doing. They're influenced in one way, but in fact, the influences are much more subliminal and, and stuff like that all the time. Yeah, that's that's why I don't read as many interviews of artists as I could because they're not necessarily good expositors of their own work or or, or headspace. The work is the best they could do. That's what Dylan says. Yeah, like, like if I want to talk about it, I talk about it. That's why this is I why can't I wrote talk songs. About it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, when I. People are always surprised here. I forget if I've said said this on a podcast before, but as a relatively big Bruce Springsteen fan, mm. as as those things go, yeah. I've I've never read his autobiography yeah. that came out a few years ago, yeah. and my answer for that is I already have my own biography of Bruce in my yeah. head, yeah, and I, I, don't, I don't need Bruce. I get that telling me what what his life was about because I already know. And, yeah, and I would actually argue that my story is better than his story. Sure, right. <laughs> I like the image of the man. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, Well, shall we? Okay. 
And I I hope you weren't jesting earlier about. Come on, you knew it. Totally knew it. I'm trying to hide it in. It has to be Infinite Jest. Yes. David Foster Wallace. This is on my list. This is the book that you kind of had. I felt like you had to read Mm -hmm. if you were in like a very specific Venn diagram. That looked a lot like me. And there's like a whole thing about this book. that. So it, Infinite Just, sorry to cut you yeah. off, was also one of the cocktails available at the... Um, and the guy, the, the, the guy, the guy never stops talking to you and has end notes to his conversation. And With, if, if you're the, the Infinite Just, you, you end up telling the mixologist, this cocktail is great. Hey, I'm going to talk to my friend. Right, for a I, got, I gotta go now. Like, I gotta, um... Yeah, so uh, it is, but yeah, it is one of those books that, like, if you, uh, uh, dear listener, decide to read this book, mm-hmm. it for some reason collects a lot of hate around it. Not for the book, because very few people who have ever bought the book have read the book. True. I have found. Yeah. But, um, and I'm not saying that to, you know, pat myself on the back or anything. It's just something that I found because I try to co- talk to people about the book and they haven't read the book. Um, Sorry to interrupt one more time. I yeah. I want to. Please uh, do. But, you're you're right. So I I would love to read Infinite Jests. I've, I've read a fair amount of David Foster Wallace. Yeah. But Infinite Jest, just and who am I that to have you know? I am the one that has the pulse on culture like like nobody else. But Infinite Jest can be used as like a punchline. Is or yeah. uh, oh wait, are you going to start to talk to me? Oh, I bet you're. It is. Infinite that's Jest. that's so, kind exactly. of how it. That's kind of how it feels. And so. In so many conversations, I end up saying, no, 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 but, but really, which is the thing that you do when you respond to that. Like, yeah. And so you end up just sort of in this weird loop, which is actually very much like the book Infinite Jest. Like you, uh-huh. you feel like you're living in within that book when you're trying to talk about the book. So right. to talk about the book. Please. Um, I can't possibly capture it, but essentially you have. It's about tennis. Yeah, it, it part of it is. There's, <laughs> there's probably three storylines. I think that's safe to say three storylines. One of them is at a tennis academy. Um, with the figurehead, or the, the main character being Hal, who is secretively smoking pot all the time. Right. Um, but it opens up and he's having a breakdown, uh, which is resolved at the end of the book, which is, you know, over a thousand pages long. Uh, there's another, um, uh, another sort of sub, or another plot, about a third of the book, which is at a Boston AA uh, kind of halfway house. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess David Foster Wallace himself sat in on a lot of AA meetings and essentially just took notes, which is probably not the way. But yeah. um, he did this and then he, you know, kind of recycled some of the material, rewrote it. Uh, and so you're literally just sitting in on AA meetings mm-hmm. for 20 and 30 pages at a time, which is for some people could sound torturous. But it's also really amazing. It's beautiful, like to yeah. hear these people's stories and all this. Um and then the other plot is, I guess there are Quebecois terrorists um, right. who are in wheelchairs. Which is funny every time. Yeah, like just to say, yeah. it, like they're in wheelchairs and they're trying to invade America, which is, has sort of fallen um, in this future where the book takes place. There's mm-hmm. a comedian as the president or some, a lounge singer or something like that. Right. Uh, something I think that I'm, never happened in real life. Right. You know, it's it, 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 well, it's one of those books <laughs> where kidding. 
the more you and we we may very well have a Vlad Singer as a president. Yeah, who, who knows? But yeah, go right. Yeah, yeah. I think well, Ukraine has a comedian president. Isn't that true? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, so it's so I'll have all these moments in life where there's these instances from Infinite Jest where I'm saying like he he kind of called what the culture is, and so essentially what he did, and you can look up the interviews on this, but but it does track out to the book where he said he looked at his generation, which are the Gen Xers, and he noticed which is true, I think, of many of my, my, my fellow millennials, that many people were just very sad. Yeah. And he noticed that many of his generation were very sad. And his explanation for a lot of it was we have so much coming at us. There's so, so many inputs um, that we really don't know how to make decisions. Yeah. We, we don't know what we should hold to be important at all. And so we have a tennis academy where you can't, like you're, you're trying to become the best tennis player in the world, but for what? Mm-hmm. Like you don't really know why you're doing it anymore. Yeah. Um, nobody's reading in this particular future. You're just sort of watching videos all the time. Yeah. Uh, AA, it, well, the culture produces addiction, arguably. Right. Um, and then you have a culture that maybe wants to destroy itself with that Quebecois terrorist thing or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of that is just a, that whole plot is just a conversation about American society broadly. Yeah. And so he more or less makes the case in the book that if you are in America in the late 20th century, maybe into the 21st century, you are an addict of some sort, Mm kind of, sort of. And so he's, in a way, trying to give you a way out. And it seems that the way out is by loving people. Hmm. Yeah. Which is what the AA thing is really, it really becomes as the book, uh, you know, progresses and all that. Um, the, the Infinite Jest, for those who are wondering, is that the book comes from Hamlet initially, but what Infinite Jest is for here is that Hal's father in the book was a filmmaker who made a, a film so entertaining that you could not stop watching it. And yes. and you would keep watching it until... I remember somebody saying And, and there's, that, a, yeah. there's hilarious scenes where, where it, it's hilarious, but it's terrible, where people will start, you know... You know defecating on themselves yep. and like the yeah. guy trying to come in to rescue that person you know the the ems person he comes in he can't stop watching it. and the police yeah. nobody can stop watching it yep. and so this is the terrorism that's coming from quebec yeah uh to destroy yeah. america and and which is really interesting to think in the in the 21st century with the advent of things like tiktok etc cetera, etc cetera, like yeah. or um and i'm not necessarily against the legalization of this that and the other but a culture that seems really interested in numbing itself right. as much as possible. Yeah, That's what the book is about. Um, so if you are looking at our culture and you are a little sort of alarmed by it but don't quite know how to articulate it, this book attempts to do that. Yeah. With a lot, like 200 pages of endnotes. Yep. You're sort of playing tennis in the book yeah. by constantly flipping back and forth. Right. Um, I never thought of that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean huh. it's it, some of the endnotes last for pages. Yeah. Um, so it's one of these books like give yourself a year mm-hmm. and like set it aside sometimes. Um, but it's one of those books. Once I read it, it profoundly changed the way that I walked through the mm-hmm. world and the way that I saw entertainment and uh, substances and how I looked at people. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it does actually have an ending. It's not, you know, 2666 right. sort of ends. Yep. This one actually does sort of have an ending. It yep. feels like it resolves. So anyway, yeah. that's that's my... Yeah. I don't want it to be as long as the book, my explanation of D- the book. So, yeah. DFW, the observer, both an observer and critic of that hyperactive malaise of mm-hmm. where, where we all are. Two observations and then a question. Yeah. I think two reasons why 
David Foster Wallace, generally and in Infinite Jest specifically, can be underappreciated now. One is because, at least in, in terms of famous writers, mm. DFW was out there as a figure. And so yeah. people will tend to know more about the biography yep. and, and, and they'll know the speech this is life. water the, the commencement address and I yeah, te- yeah. and I teach the commencement address right. it's a beautiful yeah. piece of writing yeah. yeah yeah and and if there's there there's plenty of either fault to find or even more fun to poke at David Foster Wallace the person yeah, yeah. that that I think it, it actually obscures the quality of his writing and, and I'm wearing a bandana right now admittedly right I'm wearing a bandana yeah. I'm sweating profusely with yeah it. yeah right yeah and, and and then the second thing David Foster Wallace wrote a lot about irony and on the surface would be considered a deeply ironic writer. But in mm. my experience of him, under the surface, he's not ironic at all. No. And he's actually very serious, concerned, and not afraid to take as his subject matter America. Yeah. And yeah. write very passionately and seriously about things that he cares a ton about. And there's something that's just not cool yeah. about that. Yeah. And and I think that's probably why I liked it, because as a person sort of coming out of college, I looked around and I just thought, you know, and this was in the Obama era when I came yeah. out, and I thought, is anybody um, paying attention? Like, mm-hmm. because that's when Facebook was coming around. And I just, I, and I, I had yeah. it, but I remember also being really alarmed yeah. at, at that transition of people I knew in high school and in college who could have conversations and then suddenly yep. couldn't. They right. were sort of looking down constantly yeah. yep. and being pulled into these things. And I'm reading this book and I'm sort of looking up from the book thinking, guys, what is going on? <laughs> like our attention is going this place. Yeah. But the the marrying of alcohol and uh, uh, you know, heroin addiction mm-hmm. and all of that and putting that right next to the video you can't stop watching. Right. It turns out he's correct. Like it's the same. Yeah. It's the same loops in the brain. Uh-huh. We, we now know that he was. He's kind of correct with a lot of the science that's going on mm-hmm. now about these devices that we're using and right. all that. So if this is, yeah. I mean, again, if this is something that, that interests the listeners. Like it is one of those books. Just give time for it, or at least watch his videos. He's mm-hmm. the, the videos of him with this. His nonfiction is excellent, um, but kind of sporadic. The question. Question. Why does it have to be that long? Uh, I don't know. Um, part of it is in a culture where the attention span is so short, it is one of these things. I think he says this, like he wanted it to be long. Mm-hmm. Like he wanted it to be something that you felt like you had to do. Right. You had to really try to commit yourself and, and almost to break yourself of what the culture was making you feel. Hmm. Making you do and all of that. Yeah. Um, I, I will admit too, like it was challenging for me to read. I listened to the audiobook while reading the the main prose and then I would turn that off to read the end notes. Huh. And I've the never reader heard of that Yeah, I I I've never done it since. Okay. I have I, I will recommend the audiobook is is amazing, but it doesn't have the end notes. Right. So it is one of these things like it, Which is crucial for you, you almost like feel like that. a little kid, but you can sit there and listen yeah. to somebody reading to you while you're reading this thing. And, and you, you know, it's not all serious. You will laugh out loud. It yeah. is the craziest book you're ever going to read and disgusting in a lot of ways. I mean, absolutely disgusting. Yeah. But also and but profound and beautiful like any of the big books that you do. Yeah. Like, yeah. Infinite Jest. Love it.
Yeah. I can't number one for me. Yeah. The and this is one that was not on my list if we would have recorded in September, but last month I finished Donna Tart's The Goldfinch. Yeah, and you had mentioned it, I think, on the previous one. Maybe I was reading it then. Yeah, okay. Uh, So I finished it, and 1Q84 by Murakami was going to be my my number one. Yeah, which Uh, I want to read, actually. Which is really great. Yeah. And it has been supplanted by by the goldfinch. That so. good. I've heard that the goldfinch is is much more of like a straight ahead kind of popular novel. Am I right? I one Q eight four is probably higher literary than 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 the goldfinch is. Not putting it down but, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I I think it's intentionally poppy at, at a lot of points, but yeah. it, but doesn't the so the novel starts when there's a middle school age boy who himself and his mother love art. They live in New York. Mm. There is a bomb that explodes in the Met, killing the mother, and then he's sent to a different home to live. Eventually, he befriends a Russian immigrant. Russian is oversimplifying where this other guy is from. And they they trot around the world. Sometimes they live close to each other, sometimes very, very far apart. It, it, the novel, and it's called The Goldfinch because when the bomb goes off in the Met, this middle school boy, Ted, uh, filches the goldfinch. So, so there's this painting that he always loved in the uh. Met, which is a fictional painting. But uh, in all of the rubble, he just walks out with the painting and has oh. this like wonderful Renaissance Dutch masterpiece of this yellow bird that he keeps wrapped up in his room as he goes from foster home to foster home. Yeah. And the Goldfinch painting becomes a structuring device. Like a MacGuffin kind of... Exactly. Yeah. Through, through, throughout the whole book. Sometimes he has it. Sometimes he loses it. Sometimes yeah. big parts of the novel are trying to find it. It takes him around the world to uh, oh, wow. yeah. like deal with all of these di- different characters. But I think it, by novels and it becomes apparent and 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 part of the fun is that it has like caper aspects yeah, to it, yeah, um, yeah. Which is one of the things that big books can do. You can luxuriate sort of in that uh, that sort of yeah. storytelling. The it's ultimately about love and about beauty. And yeah, so, with so the loss of the mother as the start, love loss. I would think that the painting is kind of. It reminds him of his mom. Yeah. At, at, at the end of the day. So, so for all of the wow. length of the book and the complexities, it's a meditation on how through death, loss, our own squandered lives and bad choices, love and beauty persists. And, and so, so, so it's a novel that's, I think, realistic in all the right ways, gritty at times, but ultimately a hopeful meditation on, on, on what we could be. I actually wrote about it, Tony, in my blog recently yeah, and, and toward, in front toward, of toward, 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 towards the end of the book Donna Tart says this life whatever else is short but fate is cruel but maybe not random so, so this is Ted mm. the protagonist speaking in a voice that until the very end of the novel he doesn't speak in so he, this is declamatory speech and not narrative yeah. that nature meaning death always wins but that doesn't mean we have to bow and grovel to it that maybe even if we're not always so glad to be here, it's our task to immerse ourselves anyway. Wade mm. straight into it, 
right through the cesspool while keeping eyes and hearts open, and in the midst of our dying as we rise from the organic and sink back ignominiously into the organic, it is a glory and privilege to love what death doesn't touch. For if disaster and oblivion have followed the Goldfinch painting down through time, so has love. Mm. It is a glory and privilege to love what death doesn't touch. So I I love a novel that can spend 800 pages and end with a line like that that feels earned. Yeah, I was going to say, there's the payoff. Right, and and not just, you know, a fortune cookie at the end of your takeout meal. Yeah, you remind me of an essay I'm actually teaching next week from Jonathan Franzen Mm. about David Foster Wallace. We're reading The Catcher in the Rye right now. And I'm trying to think if I read that essay. I, I might have, actually. It's beautiful. I think I have. It's yep. such a good book. Yeah, yep. He goes to an island, and he's mourning his friend. Yep. And, um, and so I use that as a discussion about Catcher in the Ryan, mourning and loss and all of that. Yep. Um, and uh, he says this whole thing, his thesis is that David Foster Wallace was very bored with life. Hmm. And uh, he, um, one of the, the end of the essay, he says, how dare we be bored? Um, oh, yeah. You know, right. and, and I and I talked to my students about this today, too. It's just funny you bring that up with that quotation um, hmm. about when you're feeling bored with life, when life is sort of gritty and horrible and all of that. Yep. Something that I've taught myself to do is to just say, just to stop and say, what a privilege. Like, what a privilege this is. Yeah. Like, what a gift this is. Even when things are going really bad. Mm-hmm. Just like, oh, wow, look at what's happening. Look how amazing. Right. Even though it's bad. Yep. And that's it. I mean, that's so. I guess as we're getting close to the end here, I'm not the host, but um, maybe what's interesting about these big books is that you said you used the word luxuriate before, mm-hmm. and I think that's right. Like, if we're maybe this is why I like them. Like, if you're going to read, there is a level to which like you, you want to read. Like, Make you want immersive, or else why are we doing it? Yeah, like really get into the thing that you're doing. Sometimes when the books are too short, you feel like you're just kind of like you're kind of cramming it. Yeah, you can kind of fit it in any old place, and yep. there's some. These are not things that can be fit in. Right. You have to. You accommodate yourself. Yeah, to you that. need to change yourself to do them. And right now, I have a small child, and it's hard for me to do that. Right. Yeah. But, um, with great art and anything that's great, you should turn yourself towards it. Anything that's beautiful, you should turn yourself towards it and mm-hmm. want to be in it for kind of as long as possible. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's what I think. Wow. Beauty and truth, truth, beauty. That's all you need to know or nothing all you need to know. There we go. Keats, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. Precinct or English majors. The Not an English major. Who? You. No. No. Yeah. Okay. Your. English major. <laughs> Singular. So, Tony, this was great. I really appreciate it. I, I do have one turtle dove. This, this will go in a different register. Yeah. So, if this week we're releasing top five big books, the pod that released two weeks ago was my top five awkward middle school and high school flirtation strategies. <laughs> which, I, okay, that's which is what, also about truth and beauty. That's what that was. Okay, I didn't hear that pod yet. That's yeah. what that really was about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, why nice. not? Nice. <laughs> so I, I, I got a text message. I forgot to ask permission to say who this is from, so I'll just use the first initial M. Hi, Jim. Just listened to your latest Five Golden Things and really enjoyed it. It definitely brought back some rather awkward memories from middle school and high school. Tony, do you have, huh, and yeah. we're, we're out of time, okay. but let's end with this. Do you, do you have a awkward flirtation strategy from middle school and high school? Mm. Um, it worked. Uh, yes. It worked, but um, it wasn't mine. Okay. 
it was uh, lying. <laughs> yeah. Lying about hobbies that you have, which is like a classic teen oh. drama thing yeah, to do. Yeah. Right. But just like lie about the hobby. Yeah. But then I returned to the flirtation by like calling the bluff and say like, "Would you want to go to the skate park with me?" <laughs> like you said, you, well, you let's go tomorrow. <laughs> which I was completely awkward because you're not actually right. supposed to look like you're interested yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. And I was just like, let's go tomorrow. I think I would like to skate with you. I think you're cool. Um, yes. And now we're married. So Wow. But it worked. You heard she, it here? Tessa does not know how to skate. Okay. But there we go. To be continued. Yeah. Tony, any parting <laughs> shots to the turtle doves? Read big, read big books. That's about it. And ta-ta turtle doves. Wow. That was definitely a top five episode of Five Golden Things, The Liberty Lists. And remember, kids, Schadenfreude ain't just a river in Egypt. Wade in the water a little deeper anytime at libertycollingswood.org and find us at the usual socials. Make us a top five follow, and you'll always be our number one. Toodle pip! You'd be the only one in on this, but I'm sure it'll... Your secret is safe with me. It'll come out later. We're recording right now. Okay. (laughs)